it's possible for anyone really it's attainable to reach your goals or to reach a much higher level than what you're at but what that really takes is hard work that was colin o'brady and this is the running on ohm podcast hey everyone i'm your host julia hanlon and what do we do here at running on ohm well every week we dive deep into conversations on the mind body spirit connection with individuals i believe have stories insight that can really change your life They've changed my life. To say that today's guest, Colin O'Brady, is inspirational is honestly an understatement. One month ago, on May 27th, 2016, Colin set two world records, the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits. In other words, Colin is the fastest person to ever summit the highest peak on all seven continents and to reach the North and South Pole in 139 days. Colin calls his expedition Beyond 72, seven summits, two poles, with the mission to raise over $1 million to combat childhood obesity. Like me, you may be wondering what motivates someone to embark on such a grueling expedition. We get into all that and a lot more in this episode. Colin discusses how his lifelong pursuit of athletics from being a nationally ranked swimmer and soccer player in high school to swimming at Yale taught him the power of discipline and teamwork. Colin also shares about how being severely burned in a fire after college led him down the unlikely path to becoming a professional triathlete. Colin reflects on each of the seven summits and the two poles, sharing some untold stories of the challenges, setbacks, and joys he experienced. He discusses the impact that his meditation practice has on his life and the mantra he used during the Beyond 72 expedition that carried him through the tough times. Colin also explains why at its core, Beyond 72 is about inspiring active, healthy youth. This conversation is a really powerful one. Colin empowers everyone to climb their own mountain in their life through hard work, passion, and patience. If this conversation with Colin moves you, reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram and share this conversation so that more people can get tapped into the amazing journey and mission of Beyond 72. Before we dive into the conversation, I want to let you guys know that I've made the transition to running on OM being 110% community supported through Patreon, which means I've transitioned out of the podcast sponsorship model. And I'm asking all of you, those who listen to Rue regularly and receive benefit from these conversations, to consider donating as little as $2 every month on Patreon. And in return, you get to be part of an intimate Rue community. Be the first to know who I plan to have on the podcast and submit your questions for me to ask them, have opportunities to be coached by me and so much more. So visit patreon.com slash running on ohm and know that any amount of support helps. A huge thank you and shout out to all those who've already joined me on the Patreon journey. I am so grateful. Okay, let's do this. Let's get into today's episode with Colin O'Brady. Yeah, you know, so much of this project um, really required a lot of patience. Um, there were obviously the days, the big epic pushes that we needed to do, but um, there was also times when it was super delayed, weather wasn't looking good. You know, at one point I was delayed in the North Pole for over eight days and kind of looked like the whole project was falling apart as a result of that. So to patiently, also, patiently wait, but also keep yourself, you know, ready to go on a moment's notice is a challenge for sure. Damn. Wow. So when you say you thought the project was going to fall apart, like give me more what happened there. Um, so at the North Pole, uh, the way that the logistics work is you need to, um, fly from this place called the Longyearbyen, which is an island of Svalbard, 
um, northern Norway, basically off the coast of Norway. Um, but uh, my starting off point for the North Pole is the 89th degree latitude. So to get dropped off there, you actually have to take a plane that lands on an ice runway out basically in the floating in the middle of the Arctic Ocean and then be dropped off at the starting point which is pretty crazy um, because that's not even land, obviously, and that's just drifting around out there. And um, the runway kept cracking that they were trying to build on on the uh, ice. And so they couldn't land the plane, couldn't get us out there. And uh, they've been building this runway since like the mid-90s. That It's actually the Russians who build it. Um, and this is the first time they've had really bad problems with it. And a lot of people think that's probably a function of climate change. Wow. Yeah, so for me... It looked like, I mean, if I couldn't get out there, that was going to be the end of the project. Not only that, I needed to go to Mount Everest right after the North Pole. And every day that I spent at the North Pole is at sea level when really I should be acclimatizing for Everest. So in the end, I got to Everest um, base camp on April 27th, which is almost a month after the first climbers arrived to base camp. So that's how far behind sort of the acclimatization schedule I was coming straight from sea level. I was uh, pretty worried. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) That's really intense. So I feel like I need to back up for a moment and just ask you how you're doing right now. Like, how is your body, how's your mind feeling at this moment? Yeah, it's incredible. You know, we embarked on this journey. Uh, I left home on Christmas Day 2015. So just about six months ago was when I actually left home. And then I reached the South Pole on January 10th. Uh, That's sort of when the clock starts for the world record effort. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's crazy to be sitting here inside my house right now, uh, having done all of that. It feels like uh, I look back on that six months. I was actually watching a clip of myself arriving to the South pole the other day. And that just feels like almost like a whole lifetime ago, even though it really wasn't in the grand scheme that long ago. Um, but yeah, feeling really, feeling really good right now. Obviously very, very proud of the, uh, the double world record success feels amazing, but um, also just still kind of sinking in. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Haven't really caught up on my sleep. My body's definitely still pretty thrown around from it all. Um, so yeah, kind of still, still working to find my center. Yeah. Totally. And to have your own bed and shower and toilet, yeah. like those yeah. little things <laughs> can just be so nice. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely uh, makes you appreciate the little things for sure. So the double world record, break yeah. that down for me. So the goal of this project uh, was to set the world record for the something called the Explorer's Grand Slam. So that's to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, as well as complete an expedition across the last degree of both the North and South Poles. Um, so that was always the primary goal that as well as our charitable efforts with kids to raise a million dollars to combat childhood obesity. Those were our two big goals. Um, and I accomplished, uh, that feat on May 27th when I broke the world record for the Explorers Grand Slam, completing it in 139 days. And the previous record had been 192 days. So I beat it by almost two months, um, which was awesome. High five. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the crazy thing was that something that I wasn't setting out or anticipating was, uh, there's also a world record for just the seventh summit. So that doesn't include the poles. So since I was including the poles in my expedition and timeline, I never really thought that the seven summits record would be in play. And to be perfectly honest, the seven summits record has been held by a lot of very prestigious mountaineers over the years, attempted by more people, um, 
and the record was was what I thought was uh, pretty far out of reach with having to also do the pole. So uh, when I realized that I was on Denali and if I could summit that day, I would also break that record, I uh, decided to go after it despite the really bad weather and storm that we were in. We uh, pushed through and so when I reached Denali on May 27th, I uh, set the Seven Summits record as well as the Explorers Grand Slam record. So yeah, great, pretty amazing feeling. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So when you got to the top of Denali, I've seen videos of it. It's pretty emotional. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this uh, this journey started long before even, you know, the beginning of the South Pole. You know, Jenna, my fiance, and I dreamed this project up a couple years ago. Um, and so to take that from just an idea we had in our mind to really putting our e- effort and emphasis into the charitable work we're doing with the kids and to have executed that to... Uh, raise the money to do this project by great sponsors to just all the logistics. It was a year into the planning of just the logistics of that. So reaching that final summit was uh, a culmination of so many different layers of hard work and things that really uh, not everyone realizes or sees. So that was uh, yeah a very emotional moment for me, for sure. Completely. It's more than just like the actual summit of Denali, which is incredible in its own right. But as you said, like the years and logistics and all that patience and all those probably flight delays yes, and like exactly. moments that aren't ever captured that people don't see and just a lifetime of you pursuing like athletics and For devoting sure. yourself to this For sure. your entire life. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that hundred percent. It's like, yeah, not like I said, it's, you know, the culmination of a couple years of hard work of just the planning of this project. But really for me, you know, having been a high level athlete for pretty much my whole life, this has felt like a culmination of decades of, you know, hard work in that space for sure. So yeah, pretty, pretty incredible feeling. Yeah. So let's go back before we kind of dig more into actual, like the summits. I want to hear about them in their own right. But your story as an athlete, I know growing up, you were a soccer player and a swimmer yeah. and went on to swim in college. How did you make that decision for college to be like, okay, I'm going to swim instead of soccer or try to do both? Yeah, that was actually a really tough decision for me. Um, yeah, growing up here in Portland, Oregon, uh, swam and played soccer, um, both at a pretty high level, won state championships in both. And I really, lo- really loved both. Um, and for me, uh, you know, I was able to balance that, but, you know, as you probably know, there's sort of this pressure now to specialize at a younger and younger age, and I was definitely being pulled in both directions. I played, you know, more soccer in the summer and fall and swam more in the winter and spring, Um, but, you know, past age 10, 11, 12, both of those sports can be pretty full-on, year-round type of sports, Um, and you know, I had coaches and mentors and both saying, Oh, you could be great at this or you could be great at this if you only dedicated all of your time to it. Um, so I actually held out longer than most, um, playing both. Um, but it kind of got to the point, uh, with college recruitment where I had to make a decision. Um, and I was being recruited by, you know, division one schools in both sports, but, uh, finally made the decision to, to go with swimming, um, which is, was almost a coin flip to be perfectly honest and there was times when I was grinding it out in the pool going why am I not like on the soccer field with my friends and my teammates and all that but um, there's something about the purity of swimming that uh, you know attracted me I guess in the end. Do you feel like anything about which one you were just better at drew you or do you feel like you were kind of equal at both? I think I was kind of equal at both. Funny enough what actually played a significant role uh, for me was that I um, I'm really young for my grade in school, 
Um, and so I was 16 my senior year of uh, high school. And swimming is a sport because your times are so objective where a coach doesn't necessarily need to see you play. From all around the country, just is a database of times and recruitable times. So I was getting recruited just based on the objectivity of swimming. Whereas in soccer, there's much more sort of dynamic and subjectivity to it. So oftentimes, top college coaches are coming to big tournaments and what to observe players. So the team that I was playing on, all of the guys on my team were a grade below me. So they were juniors in high school when I was a senior in high school. And so the coaches weren't quite watching us play yet because it was not till the next class that was getting recruited. So I was still able to attract a fair bit of attention in that space. But interestingly enough, it was actually just easier to be recruited for swimming despite the sort of level that I was playing at was probably really equivalent in both sports. Yeah, and when you went to Yale and you swam there, what was your community there like? How did, was your focus of college academics or swimming or both kind of at the same time? Yeah, both at the same time. I think I probably swam more than I went to class. <laughs> you probably did. Yeah, um, so in terms of pure hours spent, uh, I think that uh, most Division One athletes would probably uh, reflect on something similar. Um, but no, it was, it was a balance for me. Actually, Yale does a tremendous job of you know, cultivating great student-athletes, um, as well as other extracurriculars and that. Just, you know, swimming was a huge focus. Obviously, I was recruited to be there and had a responsibility to, you know, perform and do well at that. But um, definitely given the freedom to spread my wings and do other things as well, academically and other extracurriculars. So, yeah, it was a good, it was a good balance for me. And when was the seed planted where you became interested in triathlon? Because a lot of triathletes, I feel like, don't have that strong swimming background. So you really had a leg up. Yeah, had some experience in the water. Yeah, that definitely helped me for sure. Um, my road to triathlon is uh, a, a pretty unique story, I think. Um, I really never thought about doing triathlon until after college. And then I was uh, traveling in Thailand in 2008, just after college, and I was severely burned in a fire. Um, and my legs and feet were burned very badly, 25% of my body, and on a very rural part of uh, Thailand where, um, you know, I was driven to a little nursing station on a moped down a dirt road and then told that uh, if I could survive the night there that I could take me on the back of a pickup to uh, another boat and drive me to another island. Um, I had eight surgeries, eight days in a row, and there was a, literally a cat running around my bed in the ICU as I, uh, you know, came out of the surgery every day. So yeah, as you can imagine, not really the place you want to be that injured. Um, and the really scary thing for me was that I was being told by the doctors at the time that I may never walk again normally, um, based on how badly burned my legs were. Uh, usually, uh, scar tissue and burns can be really bad, particularly over joints and ligaments, knees, ankles, whatnot. And uh, so, yeah, that was sort of obviously I think anyone being told that at any point in their life is, is horrible. But as a you know, 22 year old, you know, lifelong athlete being told you may never walk again normally is a, a pretty harsh reality. Um, and so, yeah, overcoming that, uh, my mom came to the hospital and sat by my bedside for a long duration of time in Thailand. Uh, I was completely unable to walk for several months. Um, and we just kind of got on this idea of like, you know what, we're not going to accept this diagnosis. We're going to set ourselves a goal. And my goal was to complete a triathlon. Just complete. do a race. Yeah, just, just do a race. Let's just yeah. highlight the word complete. Yeah. So it's just to <laughs> not start. Not compete. The, yeah. Not to compete, not to be a professional <laughs> athlete, not to win nothing, just to 
just to race, you know, that was really my hope and my goal, um, to be able to just get out there and swim, bike and run that for me, that would have way to kind of show myself that I had been able to recover from this injury. So, um, kind of started researching triathlon and reading about it before I could even move my body again. And then eventually I could take a few steps and a few steps turned into more steps. And then finally I could jog and walk and run. Um, and uh, ended up um, competing in the Chicago Triathlon um, about 18 months after my accident and uh, surprised the heck out of myself when I won the entire race. So <laughs> uh, I guess I knew I was recovered then. Yeah, it was uh, pretty, pretty crazy. So, yeah. Wow. And yeah. so after that race, when you found out you, you won, were you like, wow, I want to do more of this or, okay, I'm good. I, you know, I just completed my goal. This was good. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it was really a huge shock to me. Obviously, like I said, my goal was totally just to complete the race. Um, but I had really enjoyed, um, pushing my body in that way again and getting my body back to feeling strong and fit. And, uh, yeah, that I, uh, I caught the attention of, uh, a guy named Brian Gelber who was, uh, came on board to be my very first sponsor and has still been supportive, uh, you know, throughout this, my triathlon career and even this mountaineering project. So incredibly grateful for that relationship. And, uh, he kind of gave me some great advice. He's a, a, not only a supporter of mine uh, as a sponsor, but a great mentor of mine. And he was like, yeah, you know, this might not be the most lucrative path, but if you're passionate about it, you're, you know, this is incredible. And I think you should pursue this and really kind of gave me, uh, the strength that I needed, uh, to, you know, kind of quit a more, uh, uh, safe career path and, uh, follow my dreams in this regard. And I'm so glad that I took that advice, um, because it's been an incredible ride. I ended up racing in 25 countries, six different continents over the last six years, and just a really incredible life experience. Were there ever moments, um, after the burn, whether it was the day of or the weeks after that you didn't know whether you could you really didn't see a future for yourself, whether it was like surviving it or actually being able to walk and having a full life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, burns a weird, uh, injury. It's not something I had much experience with. You know, I think growing up, if you're an active person or just most people have, you know, scraped their knee or maybe broken a bone or twisted an ankle or something like that, you know, those are injuries that I think we all have somewhat of a framework or context for. Um, but burns is really a, a crazy injury. You know, it, um, it, it's not something I really understood how severe it was until I was going through it. Just the pain and it takes so much out of your body. You know, the skin being the largest organ in the body, not having that and just sort of all the proteins and things just literally, literally seeping out of your body. It just depletes you in a way that is pretty unfathomable unless you've lived through it. Um, and, uh, yeah, there were some very, very scary moments. You know, I look back at the, uh, photographs, I sort of once per year on the anniversary of the burn, which is January 14th. Um, I kind of this little album of some photographs that were taken to me in the hospital and that I, that I look at and just seeing my legs in that state, even to this day, you know, brings a tear to my eye. It was, uh, just looking, I remember looking down the first time after this happened and going, oh my God, like I'll never be the same again. So to now have, you know, on the other side of that, knowing how this played out in the long run of just uh, overcoming that obstacle, becoming a professional athlete. And now I guess being a two-time world record holder is pretty, I, I can't even believe it when it comes out of my own mouth. Like it's, it's an incredible, incredible feeling and uh, has definitely taught me that 
we all face setbacks in our lives. Um, but you know, you kind of have a decision to make in those moments of just accepting that or being able to fight through that both mentally and physically. And if you can have the patience and determination to get through those hard times, you never know what's on the other side. Totally. And that you get through it also with the support, like you spoke about your mom being so paramount, it sounds like just standing by you and throughout your project that you've done most recently, your partner, Jenna, has been huge and so it's like also leaning on those oh for sure I mean none none of anything that's happened in my life uh probably ever but certainly over this period of time is just my own doing there's a lot of people and love and support that I could not have done it without my mother certainly Jenna certainly you know when I was actually burned I'd been uh traveling around the world by myself for many many months but I had just met up with uh my childhood best friend David and he was there when I was burned so just in those first few days you know the he literally on the first night you know two freaked out 22 year old kids but you know he actually got in the hospital bed with me and just held me through the night while I was crying and uh you know I'll never forget that either just the so the love and kindness that a number of people have shown me um and have supported me along the way have definitely made all the difference Wow. That's intense. Yeah. That's really intense. And so with triathlon, you pursued ITU, shorter Olympic distance, long course, not like, I think with a lot of people think of triathlon, they think of like Kona Ironman, which I'm sure you could do someday or you may. Yeah. Um, But that's not what you did. You did a very, like a different type of triathlon that's competitive in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, most of my career I faced, uh, raced ITU triathlon, which is uh, the same uh, racing that's done at the Olympics. Um, so it's the sort of similar rules that govern the Olympic games and, uh, yeah, the circuit all over the world. Um, uh, very competitive, uh, amazing athletes racing that circuit, but, uh, yeah, you don't hear quite as much about it. I don't think in everyday life because the rules are specific just for the professional athletes and just for the Olympic hopefuls. Um, whereas with Ironman, of course, and one of the beautiful things about Ironman is that the professionals are racing on the course, the exact same course, so the cool. exact same day as every other person who signed up to do the race. Um, so yeah, I have, I've done all the distances. I've raced Ironman, I've raced half Ironman, um, but the uh, majority of my career was focused on the ITU Olympic distance. Yeah, so can you take me to a race from your career that either you're really proud of or you've either drawn like inspiration from in this expedition, like a moment that sometimes you return back to as a touchstone? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, um, there was a couple come to mind. Um, you know, funny, one of the first that comes to mind is actually not a overall success, but just pieces of a success. I think one of the really difficult things about triathlon is it's three different sports and to get them all clicking on the same day is uh, a challenge for sure. Um, But I was racing uh, several years ago, I was racing the Cozumel World Cup, uh, which is, uh, you know, one of the top top level races um, and uh, really good field at the time. The guy racing there, Jose, or excuse me, Javier Gomez was, uh, you know, just just to come off his like third or fourth world championship yeah you know he's an olympic medalist and really talented athlete number of other really top guys there and um yeah it was just this one of those races where i i remember coming off you know swam with the front pack came onto the bike got off the bike you know shoulder to shoulder with you know the world current world champion you know several of us all coming off together on the bike you know, I got crushed on the run in that race and fell apart. But uh, no, that was a, you know, the thing about triathlon and, you know, anyone will tell you who's had success in this sport is it's something that takes many, many, many years to cultivate. So 
you know, if you nail the first two thirds of a race and you're shoulder to shoulder with literally the best guy in the world at the time, that's still a success, even if you, you know, ended up getting crushed in, in the end. Um, so that's, that's something that popped into my mind right away. But well, and um, what's cool to me about that story is like, you had the courage to like, to stick with it during that time. Cause I think it can be intimidating if you're like totally. not number one yeah. to be like, Oh my God, I'm going to hang with him. You <laughs> right. know what I mean? Like I've, I think a lot of us have experienced that even on the amateur level with like our training partners who may be a little faster and you're like, I'm really doing this. Right. Like, right. You know? And then that's something kind of cool is you're willing to blow up. Yeah. You're like willing to put it out there. For sure. I mean, I think so much and you know, the, the anecdote or metaphor from that story is exactly that, you know, you've, you've got to, you've got to learn from, you know, trying and pushing your body and seeing how far you can go and failing, you know, ultimately, if you look at my race result on that day, I don't remember what place I came, but it wasn't anything very particularly special. Um, but you know, there was a lot to learn from that race. You know, there's a lot to like gain from, even if it's the overall thing isn't a, a success, but just sort of incremental gain. So I think that that's really important. Um, and, you know, teaches you to, like I said, in almost the same metaphor as a Burns, like, you know, to stick with something, to stick with a process. I think in training and in fitness, uh, it's very easy to be frustrated or disappointed if you don't, you know, achieve all of your goals straight away. But, you know, it's a long process. And the, the particularly in endurance sports, the people that have been wildly successful in endurance sports, if you really look back at it, there's not a lot of overnight success. Like, it's mostly like decades of hard work and chipping away at it um so to learn something from every race i think something i tried to do in my career for sure uh, another race that comes to mind was um one of the first half ironman races i ever raced actually um uh and it was a uh, rev three in south carolina um and ended up winning that race um the half ironman race but what sticks out to me in my mind in relation to the mountaineering project is I hate cold water. Like, I really hate swimming in cold water. Um, it's not something, I don't know, like, you would think after the many years I've swam that you just at some point get used to it or whatever. But, like, since I was a five-year-old kid until, like, now, I hate jumping in the pool to start a swim workout. I hate jumping in a lake. To, I like being in water, but, like, I just don't like <laughs> starting in it. You've done it thousands like, of times. Like, literally thousands of times. Like, Jenna jokes around. She's like, really? Like, really? You're going to still complain about it? You do this every day. And I was like, I, I don't know what it is. I just hate it. Like, I hate that, like, first moment. <laughs> then it's fine. But um, that race, there was a really, really stormy race. So we basically, they were almost going to not start the race and then start it and not start it because of thunderstorms. Then we finally get into the swim. It's cold water but it's like thunderstorming so much that it's a lake, but like the water is so disrupted by the rain and the wind and everything. It just feels like it's almost like an ocean. And then onto the bike, um, riding in, you know, torrential downpour, you know, inches of water on some of the parts of the bike course, just trying to stay, stay upright. Um, and then having sort of the, the strength to push through and, and run a half marathon and, you know, get to the finish line first. So I think that's definitely just the, the adverse weather that I've, uh, encountered over the past, uh, several months and uh the physical nature of having to sort of push through when the conditions are far less than ideal um knowing that i've done that on the race course and come out victorious definitely uh you know something to draw on as i was out in the mountains as well yeah and i can imagine with triathlon you got to train or be coached by a lot of amazing individuals who is someone that you really look up to that you got to work with yeah you know i've uh yeah, I've really been fortunate to train with some incredible athletes, uh, some incredible coaches for sure. Um, I think probably the most pivotal point in my career on, along those lines was 
uh, in 2012, uh, I was coached by Siri Lindley, who's coached a number of, you know, world champions and athletes. Um, and on the squad at that time, there were a number of uh, current as well as future world champions. Uh, Miranda Carfrey, Leanda Cave, Luke, Luke McKenzie, who came second at Kona a couple of years or two after that. Um, so, yeah, it was just really amazing for me at that point in my career, particularly because I was young and new to the sport. And uh, I think I learned a lot of really valuable lessons through that period of time uh, for myself, uh, particularly because... The, sort of like I said, it's that process. Being able to train with some of the you know best coaches and athletes in the world when you're sort of more new in something, uh, and learn from them. And really, what I learned was there's no like secret here. Like it, it's it's demystified. Funny enough, like people seeing think like, oh, this guy's won a world championship. He must know something that we don't know. And like it was actually nice to see after training with the same people day in and day out at that level. Like there's no secret. These people are putting in a ton of hard work and have consistently put in hard work for the past, you know, several decades. Sure, they might have some physical predisposition to being a bit stronger, a bit faster, but like it kind of like really boils down to a ton of dedication, hard work, good luck, staying healthy, you know, all of those things. And for me, that was a valuable lesson because I think what that instilled in me was that it's possible for anyone really um i mean it's it's attainable to reach your goals or to reach a much higher level than what you're at but what that really takes is hard work but that's more inspiring for me um because that's better than being told well unless you're just hit over the head with like this magic like ability then that's the only way it's possible so it made it feel i don't know more attainable yeah yeah and when during the triathlon journey was the seed planted for the Explorers Grand Slam for this whole mountaineering expedition? Like, take me to that first moment that yeah. it even came to mind, or you even knew it was a thing. Yeah, so I've known, you know, about, um, you know, avid climber my whole life, just as a hobby, certainly nothing as intense as I just went through. Um, but uh, growing up here in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we're surrounded by beautiful mountains and outdoors and have had family and people, um, you know, inspire me to just be outside and climb and just something I've loved my whole life. So in, in broad strokes, I've been aware of the seven summits and, you know, these expeditions. I love to like read books about it and stuff like that. Um, but it wasn't really till about 2014, um, interestingly enough, that uh, story I just told you about winning that half Ironman in the bad conditions, it was kind of around that exact same time where things were actually really starting to click in my triathlon career, I was having some great results and some good racing. But I was also getting to a point where, you know, Jenna and I had been all over the world, we'd lived all over the world, raced all over the world, had this incredible life experience in that regard. But I was kind of getting to a point where I was wondering, you know, this is wonderful and I love this, but it also feels somewhat self-serving. You know, it's just me, my own sort of personal success, failure. My sponsors might be happy or disappointed, but um, it's really just just for me. And being a professional athlete had been a lifelong dream of mine. Um, and so being able to live that out through my 20s and, like I said, have all this traveling experience, whatever, it was incredible. But I felt like there was another layer that I wanted to add to that. So Beyond 7-2, uh, this world record project, was really born from that space of what can I do that is physical, that I still, you know, really excites me and pushes my body in a unique and dynamic way, but that also has a larger platform. Um, so 
our biggest, you know, biggest goal with this project was to inspire kids and the next generation to get outside, live healthy, active lives, and, um, you know, raise a bunch of funds towards combating childhood obesity. So, yeah, this was a way to kind of combine those two things, to build a platform around this project, to tell this story in a way um, that's not to try to inspire everyone to climb the biggest or tallest mountains around the world, but rather use my sort of inspiration, goal-setting, dreaming big mission um, to inspire people to do the same in their own lives. How did Jenna first react to you when you told her about this wild idea? <laughs> no, no, it was it was more it was it was not me just coming to her and saying I want to do this. It was a much more fluid conversation than that. Um, she's climbed many mountains. We had actually recently gotten engaged on the top of the third tallest mountain in Ecuador at about nineteen thousand feet. Um, so she has something that she loves to do as well. Uh, she'll tell you that she wouldn't necessarily prefer to do what I did as in, you know, four or five months uninterrupted. Uh, but you know, she likes to go out climbing for a few days and be out in the wilderness as well. Um, and so, yeah, it was more of a a much more fluid conversation. She's really excited about the project, particularly the charitable mission behind it. Um, but of course, just like any, you know, loving partner would, there's some trepidation and anxiety about the risks and the, the fear along that line is, and of course my family has expressed the same, which is an unwavering support, but also a, uh, realistic amount of fear and anxiety. Um, so balance of those two things. Completely. And so when you made that decision, like to embark on this, did you say, okay, I'm going to step aside from triathlon and just totally focus my training and my lifestyle? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't really step straight away from triathlon. Um, in fact, I thought that triathlon was a really amazing foundation for doing this project actually. And the inspiration behind this project, a lot of people have looked at this and said, wow, like that seems like just like this crazy, like, you know, departure, departure, U-turn, whatever you want to call it. Like you're racing triathlon professionally. Now you want to go like to the North pole. Like what are those things have any in common? But I actually think they have a lot in common. Um, first of all, if you were just going to train for the world record project I just did, you would probably do a ton of swimming, biking, and running. Like that would be like a great like just baseline for that cardio um, that you need, anyways. So I figured I should just race another year professionally, train the way I had been training. So that's actually when I switched to not racing any more ITU races and just racing Ironman and half Ironman races. Because, you know, the longer aerobic fitness just made a little bit more sense for what I would be encountering in the mountains. But still, I mean, it's just, I basically spent the whole year, um, you know, I raced Ironman Japan on the end of August and left on this for this project, uh, you know, a couple months later. Um, So I thought triathlon was a great foundation, of course with my coach, um, and brought in a couple other people to work with, you know, I, I tailored some more specifics around climbing, did some more climbing, some strengths, that sort of stuff, um, that I wouldn't have normally done, uh, with just purely triathlon training, but really triathlon served as a great foundation. And then the other thing is that we had, um, I have been saying to you before we got on, uh, the mics rolling that between 2012 and 2014, we had slept in a different bed uh, every night for every three nights on average for three years. So, I mean, we're just on the road, racing all over the world, living all over the world. Um, and so this project really wasn't that dissimilar to that. Of course, it's different when you're sleeping in a bed or hotel room versus a tiny little tent on, you know, the Arctic uh, Ocean. 
but um, there's something similar about just the constant movement, living out of a bag and uh, that. So there's a lot of similarities actually in this project to what I had been doing before. Yeah. And that, I mean, you're your entire life, as I kind of said, it's like, it's been preparing you for this, to have that endurance base and that athletic base and that mental, like honing and training that you've been doing and your experience in Thailand. There's just so many things that I feel like have come together to prepare you for what you just did. No, oh, absolutely. Like so much. It really is a culmination of all the, the various things that I've done in my life for sure. So when you look at the seven different summits, the North and the South Pole, I mean, I'm sure each one of them has obviously its own story and I really encourage listeners to go check out your social media and I had so much fun watching all like the different videos along the way and just kind of sharing in your journey it was beautiful when you look at all of them what would you say was the most challenging summit day for you um I think the most challenging summit day is probably near the end um you know Everest particularly is particularly challenging um I uh, attempted Everest uh hopefully to summit on May 14th and got up to 26,000 feet where Camp 4 is and then got caught out in some really bad winds and actually had to descend all the way back down um and for most people going to Camp 4 you don't really go there more than once um generally um just with just such a toll on your body to be up that high for that long and then have to try to go back there a few days later was really tough um so that was definitely a massive push on the second summit attempt it was just 3 days later um that I went back up the weather still wasn't very good but I was able to make it to the summit um but what really made this project tough was the consecutive nature of everything. So rather than one individual summit day, um, because they each really had their own challenges in themselves, but it was, you know, I was on the summit of Everest on May 19th, and I summited Denali on May 27th, so that's only eight days later. But within that time, I had to get down from the summit of Everest, like get myself to Kathmandu, fly 30 hours, you know, to Alaska, get on a bush plane that takes you to the bottom of the glacier, Alaska, then climb Denali, which normally takes, you know, about three weeks to climb. Um, so just that like back to back to back, no rest. I mean, I got to a point, uh, I remember I called Jenna after I had summited Everest and, uh, I had said, you know, it just took me an hour to take my boots off. Like that's how tired I am right now. And she's like, well, your flight's tomorrow from this time to this time. <laughs> you better get out there. Yeah, we got Denali to climb and another record to set and this. So, you know, she definitely stayed on top of, of me. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, that's what really made it tough. And certainly towards the end, Everest was the eighth of the nine expeditions. Um, and then Denali after that. You know, the Denali Summit Day was crazy. Um, I had mentioned before that we, uh, we basically found out, realized that we had this opportunity to set not one but two world records if I could get up to Denali very quickly. Because um, otherwise I had a little bit more time to spare with the Explorer's Grand Slam record. I could have maybe recovered a week or waited out some bad weather. But... I ended up at Denali at 14,000 camp, uh, and most people go from 14,000 and then go up to 17,000, sleep there, and then summit from 17,000 camp. Um, but we didn't have enough time for that. Uh, my climbing partner and I, uh, a guy named Tucker, who I grew up swimming with, actually, so a childhood buddy of mine was my partner for that, that climb. Uh, we realized, well, today is our shot. We've got to go from 14, which means it's twice as long of a summit day. And we woke up to basically 50, 60 mile per hour winds, really bad storm coming in. And uh, we had one other guy with us and he was like, 
there's no way. Like, we're not, like, we're not climbing in this. This is ridiculous. Um, and he probably actually made the smarter choice between the three of us to not attempt the summit on that day. But Tucker and I decided, you know, let's, let's give it a shot. Even if we go for 15 minutes and realize this is insane, like, we'll turn around. But we just kind of kept checking in with each other. And uh, the first little bit is a kind of a more gentle snow slope. And we actually got knocked off our feet a couple times by the wind in that first section. So things were not looking good. Um, but, you know, we kept going up, kept making our way and kind of checking in. It was minus 60 wind chill from what I'm told on that day. Um, and uh, just, of course, worried about our hands and feet. Um, but we're able to stay warm and keep moving. The sun was actually out, even though it was really windy and uh made it to the top so that was uh i would say that being the ninth expedition being in such adverse conditions no one else on the entire mountain moved that day at all um when we were leaving the camp actually a couple people uh that we knew in camp unzipped their tent flaps and kind of poked their head out and was like where are you guys going we're like we're gonna go to the summit and they're like Ah, really get back in your tent where are you really going and we we're like no we're gonna try it people just thought we were crazy um but were there moments on that climb where tucker and you like questioned it or it was just kind of like continue plowing forward <laughs> yeah there- no that definitely was there was actually it wasn't until we were there's this last little hill up to the summit ridge uh called pig hill uh you're really close to the summit at that point and it wasn't until that point uh, Tucker started fist pumping and he was like, we're actually going to make it. And then the only thing I could think, cause I was just shattered having just come off Everest. I was like, how does he have enough energy to fist pump anything right now? <laughs> like, I was just done. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it wasn't until we were actually practically on the summit that we both believed that we were going to be there. I mean, it was a pretty touch and go the whole day and a couple funny things happened. I, uh, my, um, Gore-Tex pants, the zipper broke on one side of them. Then I, uh, we, we're trying to like duct tape them back as the wind is like blowing my pants. I'm freezing now because my pants have like falling apart because I just been like on these expeditions. My gear is kind of like starting to fall apart a little bit. I put on another pair of pants, the only other pair of pants I have, which is a down pair of pants, and the other leg zipper broke. So I've got one leg off on one side, one leg <laughs> off on the other side. And then like my watch strap, which hadn't, uh, I literally hadn't taken my watch off. It has like my altimeter on it for the entire time that this has started. So it's for six months or whatever, I'd been wearing the same watch and that the watch strap broke. And I was like, wow, things are just like, <laughs> the wheels are falling off. Like this is like, it's everything. This is, is meant co- to be like yeah, the this final is, like, day. This is the last day because like everything is just falling apart. Um, but uh, yeah, fortunately it was the final day and we made it, made it up and down safely. So when you guys got to the top, I saw the summit video, and I don't know if it was Tucker or you, but one of you said, like, this is some blue-collar climbing. Yeah. Was that you? <laughs> that was Tucker. Okay. Yeah. So was he referring to just everything breaking down, or was he... He was just basically like, there's nothing glamorous about what we're doing right now. I think that he says right before that, yeah, 40 in the face, or something like that. Basically, all day long, we just began abused by the wind. The wind chills were ridiculous, as seen by the fact that no one on the entire mountain even left their tent that day, let alone went and spent 12 hours up and down climbing this route. Um, I think he was just like, yeah, this is just like, there's nothing, nothing fancy about this, nothing special, just kind of gritting it out and getting it done. And for it to be like an official world record, what kind of process did you guys have to go to? If it was just you and Tucker on the top, like how does, who's the committee that's saying, okay, this is official. Yeah. So Guinness, uh, is Guinness Book of World Records is sort of who regulates the seven summits records. Um, and it just requires, uh, we're actually having, uh, 
quite actually done this whole process yet, um, but very cognizant of this process throughout the project to make sure everything was super well documented. So it's a matter of getting um, basically witness consent forms from the people who were on the mountains with me. Uh, it was various people. No one was with me the whole time, so different people throughout. Um, but then also I had a GPS tracker that I had on me at all times when I was moving on the mountain. So we have all of those files. I have photos in sort of every angle, um, from each of the summits with me with the summit marker and all that sort of stuff. So there's a various sort of ways, thorough, thorough ways. Yeah. Of course we wanted to make sure that it was, I mean, for me, a lot of the photo taking just has to do, we wanted to share this story also and take amazing photos. Um, but, um, yeah, very aware of just kind of this in the mountaineering world, there's been some exceptions where people have, Oh, I climbed this, but I didn't take a photo or I didn't this. And there's always sort of some controversy. So we wanted to mitigate that by just doc really well documenting it, which we did a very good job of. Yeah. And Aconcagua, I know you had originally planned to summit it with a friend or a partner, but yeah. you summited it alone. Yeah. What happened so, there? What was that like to do that by yourself? Yeah. So I was planning on climbing with my friend Henry, um, a very strong mountaineer from Ecuador. And uh, basically, as we were making all the plans for this project, we obviously had to kind of guess on some of the dates and things. And it turned out that I finished the South Pole and Mount Vincent in Antarctica about a week faster than I had originally anticipated finishing. And so I flew up to Mendoza, Argentina, which is where you start the Aconcagua climb from, and got in touch with Henry. And I said, oh, Henry, I'm here. I know it's a week earlier than we had planned. Like, can you get here? And he was like, no, I'm like climbing. He was like on another mountain in Ecuador. He's like, the fastest I could get here would be basically a week from now when we had originally planned. And so originally, obviously, I was very bummed and kind of, well, what should I do? But obviously, the clock is ticking at this point. And so kind of had to make the call of, do I continue on by myself um, or do I wait a week? Um, of course, it's going to be a safer climb with another partner a bit easier because we can divide some of the group gear and share a tent and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Or do I just kind of go it alone? So I decided that I would uh, uh, not wait for him and go alone just because I wanted to continue the progress and um, it was a really, really tough, tough way to do it, to climb completely alone. I also, um, you can use mules on the lower mountain there, but once you get to base camp, you either have to hire porters or just carry everything yourself. And I carried everything entirely myself. So very, you know, self-sufficient uh, on that whole climb, just, just myself. But in all honesty, when I look back on all the summits that I made, that one was one of the most, if not the most special in terms of just, not only was I climbing alone completely, but I uh, was the first person on that. Other people summited the mountain the same day I did from other climbing teams, but I was actually the first person on the entire mountain that day to summit. So to be on a nearly 23,000-foot mountain completely alone uh, was just an amazing feeling. Like It was just unlike anything I've ever experienced. Um, so that was really a, a unique summit for me. Yeah, and I can imagine just, like, having to be with yourself intimately. Yeah. Like, it's only you who's, like, you're having that dialogue with yourself up the mountain. Like, there's no one else to kind of carry that emotional weight as well. For sure. You know, on so many of these mountains, like, you know, just describing the summit day with Tucker, there's that dynamic of we're checking it. Are you doing all right? How you, what do you think about this? You know, sort of that, that back and forth. So to be on such a big mountain like Aconcagua completely alone, um, I actually similar to Everest, had to make two summit attempts. Uh, my first summit attempt uh, was thwarted at about 20,000 feet, again, in really bad winds and snow. Um, 
but it's a very different feeling to be up on a mountain that I've never climbed before. I don't necessarily know the route that well, and I'm caught out in a storm and making it, should I go forward? Should I come back? What should I do here? Um, so all of that decision-making and having to internalize that uh, completely alone is, uh, is, is tough, but also, like I said, also a, a, special, a special experience as well. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that video watching you on the top of that video, it really felt like that was probably like one of the most challenging yeah, days for you that for you sure. captured. Yeah, I mean, I just think, like there was a rawness to you that I didn't feel like I saw in some of the other summits. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was crying on that summit and uh, I think that was also a culmination of not just that climb, but that was the third expedition of the nine. And I was kind of like, wow, like it's actually happening. You know, like it's one you get to the first one, you're like, OK, there's eight more. Like a lot of these are things. And then it was kind of like you know, having these setbacks, my climbing partner not being able to be there and being like, okay, well, maybe I should try it alone. But this is like, at that time, I had climbed in the Himalaya previously, but I had reached about the same altitude as the summit of Aconcagua when I was in the Himalaya before. So I was alone, also at basically the highest altitude I've ever been in my life, climbing alone, doing this project. And it was just like, wow, we're doing it. Like, it's happening. So it was just tears of joy, tears of, I don't know, just exhaustion, um, and, uh, yeah, that was a really definitely raw and special moment for me. What's amazing is I feel like each one of the different expeditions, like probably took you out of your comfort zone in a different way. And card, cardisons, Karstens, that's a hard Karstens, one to pronounce. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. Karstens was a different type of climbing. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about how you prepared for that or how that went down? Yeah. So most of the climbs on the Explorers Grand Slam, obviously these mountains are all generally very high altitude. Um, and with high altitude usually comes glacier, snow travel, um, you know, that type of climbing. Um, but Carson's pyramid, which is the mountain in the Australasia continent is in, uh, West Papua, the westernmost part of Indonesia, um, which of course politically is Asia, but way too long of a story to tell, but is the defined in the Australia continent, um, is a 16,000 feet, uh, basically rock spire. Um, but it is very near to the equator. So there's a tiny bit of snow on a neighboring mountain, but pretty much that whole area in the entire country of Indonesia, of course, doesn't have snow. Um, so very different than most of the other climbs. Um, so it's uh, basically this, uh, this rock climb up this uh, sort of granite sandstone uh, spire. Um, so very, very unique and different to the others. So it had to be, you know, able and... Uh, to, to, to climb that way as well. And you had a crew for that one, it looks like. You had a group of people you were climbing with. Yeah, it was uh, four of us in total. Um, so, yeah, it was great. Uh, very uh, prolific Himalayan guide and mountaineer, a guy named Russell Bryce. Um, I don't know if people have seen the, the Sherpa movie or some other things, but he is sort of one of the, the main people in that. Um, he uh, is just a friend of mine. He wasn't guiding me or anything like that, but him and his neighbor... Um, Chris were uh, trying to complete the seven summits just in a lifetime. He's like, it's crazy. I mean, this guy's climbed Everest several times. This guy's put up some of the most, you know, impressive routes in the Himalaya ever. Just an absolute legend, but just never kind of like got around to doing the seven summits. So now he's in his 60s and him and his neighbor are like, oh, there's a couple they haven't done. And Karstens was one of them. So Russ and I met in Nepal last year. And uh, he was like, we're going to do this. And I know you need to fit it into your project. Do you want to all do it together just as friends? And so it was really fun to be climbing 
with him because, uh, you know, I, I, I joke around with him a bit. He, again, the most, you know, famous Himalayan guide and expedition leader. But at this point, he doesn't climb anymore. He sits in base camp and facilitates a lot of the logistics. He's got this telescope where he looks at his climber, makes some calls. But he's actually not up on Everest anymore making these decisions. And so I was like, wow, Russ, we're actually going to see you climb this time? Um, And so it was absolutely incredible to share that experience with him. I mean, one of the biggest legends uh, in in the sport and in the space. And to just hear all of his stories... uh, telling me oh in 1975 you know we just took a rope and me and my buddy hitchhiked around south america and climbed this and climbed this and just the stories and hearing his perspective of course on um you know now you've got gps or satellite maps or whatever he's like we would just look at a mountain there might be a guy that said i think there might be a ridge on the other side if you walk around here and then they would just like go for it i mean it's just a way more you know, an era of, you know, really true exploration and adventure um, that's hard to, you know, recapture in, in our day and age. So super fun to share uh, that climb and that experience with uh, a, a guy like Russ. That's beautiful because it's also he was completing like his lifelong goal too to get to like share that totally. his goal as well and then get filled up with inspiration. Totally. Yeah, him. no, it was really, really, really fun. And uh, yeah, him and his neighbor just kind of they're, they're really good friends, best man at each other's uh, recent weddings and whatnot. And they're just like, yeah, once a year, let's just do like, because he's, you don't really, normally when he's in the mountains, he's working. It's serious work. He's managing all these clients and Sherpas and all this sort of stuff. So I think it's fun for him to get back to just being in the mountains with a couple of buddies, you know, yeah. climbing and, you know, messing around and all that is a, is a fun departure for him, I'm sure. And when you did Kilimanjaro, you had a guy named Frank. Yeah. Who has said that he's climbed Kilimanjaro over a hundred times. Yeah. But he was one of the few guides that would take you because you did it in 11 hours, 50 minutes, if I'm correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we climbed uh, Kilimanjaro in one push, basically, yeah, and uh, just under 12 like hours from the bottom to the top. Yeah. <laughs> like- and it's funny. So there, you know, that's a mountain that I wouldn't, you know, I try to do pretty much this whole project without guides. Um, just as the way I prefer to climb, self-sufficient. I uh, didn't use a guide on Everest, just climb me in one Sherpa um, or just friends who I climb with like on Denali. But in Tanzania, the government requires you to go with a local guide. I mean, you could be the most prolific mountaineer in the world and they still are said, no, you have to go with one of our 100 or whatever certified guides. It's just, this is the rules there. And it's actually great because it's job creation and for the most part, it's you know safer and whatnot. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but he had told me later that um, they, Jenna had, Jenna, who was facilitating all these logistics, had kind of called them up and said, hey, you know, you know, this is Colin and he's doing this project. And he uh, had actually climbed Kilimanjaro previously with Jenna in 2013. And we did the normal like six, seven day program, summited, took our time, really enjoyable. Um, And I was like, oh, I want to do it a little differently, do a different route. And I'd love to see if I could climb it in a single day. And they just laughed. Like, they were like, you're crazy. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, and so they, I didn't, again, I didn't know it at the time, but Frank told me later that they had asked 30 different guides if they would take the trip before, they, before he agreed. And the funny thing to me about it is the rule, there's lots of rules there, government rules. And the government rules also stipulate that the minimum amount of days that you can pay for is five days. And you also have to pay for a cook and several porters and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, well, look, like I'm going to take a light backpack. I don't need to sleep anywhere. I need like, I can just bring my own food for the day, 
and I'm just trying to go up and down. And they're like, well, you still have to pay for the Thrive Porters and the guide and the, the, this whole thing, which is fine. I mean, it's just funny. That's just the way the rules are there. But I figured, hey, if you can climb it in a day, you're going to get paid for five days. Why wouldn't you want to take this trip? It's like a good like value proposition. And apparently, like all their guys were like, nah, this is horrible. No, Is it just you. like too extreme? Like, yeah, like they're just, just like, like, why do it? Yeah, why do it like that? Like, I mean, this guy, Frank, he's a very strong guy. He's climbed Kilimanjaro over 100 times. But even him, he said three and a half days was like the fastest he had ever done it in, wow. ever. Wow, so you pushed him. So the funniest thing happens is that the first two hours, so Kilimanjaro, the entrance to the gate is somewhere um, around five or 6,000 feet. And then the summit's 19,000 feet. So you're basically gaining a rough, roughly 14,000 feet in you know the course from the gate to the summit and so you start out in this like kind of tropical jungle and then obviously when you finally get to the top here there's actually snow up there so it's vastly different you know climates as you make your way up it's amazing yeah it's incredible so the first two hours frank just like takes off like we barely met each other and he's like you know he's this guy i mean i'm like he's like yeah we're i'm fit i'm ready to climb to the top i'm like cool and he just takes off. And I'm like, whoa. Like, I'm, like, thinking, man, this guy's either, like, superhuman. Like, I cannot keep his pace. There's not a lot of people that generally, like, really. I mean, there's plenty of people that are stronger than me. But there's not a lot of people that are just, like, He's what? pushing like, just it. really pushing it. And I'm like, or either that or he is going to fall apart. Like, <laughs> and sure enough, a couple hours into the climb, he starts to slow back down to first kind of a normal pace and then a little bit slower than a normal pace. And I, um, I always eat uh, goo chews when I climb. I just find that they, like, they don't freeze and they just this good like quick like sugars. Obviously, normal day life, I wouldn't, wouldn't put that in my body, but it's great for, it's great for it climbing. It gets the job done. Super gets the job done. And like, I mean, goo products have been good for me in my athletic pursuits for years and years. Um, and yeah, that's kind of just my go-to. So that's what I just stuff my backpack with when I'm climbing. And I take like, you know, goo juice, goo chews out of the packet, you know, start eating them. He's like, can I get one of those? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, no worries. And then I realized like he has brought a half a liter of water and like one bar or something. I mean, just like nothing, no food. And I'm like, Frank, you knew we're going to be out here for like, we're trying to make the Kate to the summit. Like, what'd you think? And he's like, Okay, I have to tell you, there's a bet going on at the hotel right now, and every person, including myself, has bet against this actually being a feasible thing for you to do. And he's like, I figured if we went fast in the first couple hours that you would give up. He would burn you. (laughs) Yeah, he would burn me out, and I would give up. So they were totally expecting me. He was like, why even bother bringing food? This like stupid guy is going to turn around after an hour or two realizing this is a bad idea. And so he was, I think, maybe disappointed when <laughs> I didn't turn around. And so fortunately, I had brought enough food, a little bit of extra water and things. And so we just kind of shared that and, and got to the top. In the end, it was really fun. But it was hilarious that there was just like... There's this whole understory under, yeah, yeah. like undercurrent. <laughs> That's amazing. And when you got to the top from the video, he was like giving you like a sermon you know like he just like (laughs) shared like so much wisdom with you it was really cool yeah oh it was awesome in the end like i said we had a tremendously fun time together and a great adventure and he was like always remember this one day this is so cool and we actually summit as you saw from the video at night um 
because you know still after 12 hours it got dark and uh so normally not on the summit up in Kilimanjaro in the dark um so yeah it was just a really whole whole funny experience and I'm actually glad that after an hour or two he kind of broke the ice by like okay I'm gonna tell you the whole backstory here like no one wanted to take this trip we definitely didn't think you were actually gonna be able to do the trip and I was trying to tire you out in the first couple hours. But since you aren't tired yet, I guess we should figure out how to just get up this mountain. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, You're that's like, hilarious. dude, you don't know what I'm made of. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, the first couple hours, he was going on a level that I was like, I can, I can definitely cannot match this pace for the next 10 hours. But we like, also have to keep in mind that he was probably born at altitude. Yeah, well, not not really? necessarily. Yeah, so uh, Kilimanjaro is the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, okay. um, which actually makes it very unique. So when you're up in the Himalayas, you're on the summit of Everest. Even there's huge peaks all surrounding. Whereas you're on the summit of Kilimanjaro at nineteen thousand feet, and there's nothing. Like everywhere below is two thousand feet. Okay. So you're just so most of the people actually grow up, you know, in not, yeah. Yeah, not at altitude. Okay. Um, I spoke from not knowing. Oh, no, no. That's a really, that would be a, uh, a reasonable uh, assumption. Yeah. I spent some time in Ethiopia after college. Yeah, that's super high. Living there with runners. And yeah. none of these women had actually like ever lived at sea level. Right. So it's like just your conception yeah. of, you know, difficulty and exertion levels is just different. I think, yeah, for sure. When yeah. you're at altitude. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And so there was also a summit that you did. You did an eighth summit. Yes. As well. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that story? So like- I, I alluded to it briefly, but basically um, there's somewhat of a controversy in the seven summits in the mountaineering community of what defines the seven summits. Um, six of the mountains, there's no controversy about what is the tallest on each of those continents, but the Australia or Australasia or Oceania continent, depending on how you want to define that, can be defined two different ways. So if you look at Australia just as a continent itself, the landmass of Australia, the tallest mountain is a mountain called Kosciuszko, which is a 7,000-foot mountain. Um, there's like a, a ski resort in the winter there, but you know if you go there in the summer, it's pretty much a day hike. It's a pretty like relaxed climb, if you will. So, um, and the other is Karsten's Pyramid, the one I was just talking about climbing with Russell Bryce um, in Indonesia, which is uh, quite a bit harder to get to, much more challenging climbing, and that's about 16,000 feet, so considerably higher. Um, And so there's these two different lists. There's called the Bass List and the Messner List, or the two like prominent uh, lists around the seven summits. And so I just decided, well, I'm going to climb them both so that there's no controversy. If you want to say I did this list, fine. If you want to say I did this list, fine. But I've done both lists and both in record time. Um, so it was uh, the decision to just do both. And it was really fun. Uh, Kosciuszko, which is the more moderate climb in, in Australia, uh, Jenna was able to join me there for that. So we, we did, did, did one of the little ones together, but at least got to one of the summits together. So, yeah, in the end, it was actually eight, eight climbs as well as both poles. That's pretty sweet that you guys got to share that. Yeah, super fun. That's really cool. You mentioned with Russell, like when he was climbing in the 1970s and 80s, there wasn't the technology to share a Snapchat from the top of Everest. Right. What did it feel like for you to be so plugged into your family, your friends, the world that was supporting you while you were out there? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, even for me, of course, 
the the times that uh, some of the times Brussel was telling me about her before I was even born. But even for me, and you know, growing up as a kid here in the Pacific Northwest, when we you know go camping and when I was a kid in the '90s or whatever, there's no cell phones, there's no any of that. Um, so I always kind of equated being you know in the outdoors to being really cut off. Um, I even did a, a three month expedition in Patagonia in 2004, and um, you know, there was one point when we were getting resupplied food that I got a letter from my mom that was dated, you know, a month before that I even received it. So I mean, that's even in, you know, 2004, I'm still in a part of the world that's very cut off and remote. Um, but the world has changed. Um, and I think there, there's maybe some downsides to that for sure. Um, just that feeling of being unplugged and really like communing with nature in that way. Um, but one of the really special things about that is being able to share my story and being able to tell this narrative in real time. Um, you know, before setting embarking on this, we knew that there was going to be plenty of setbacks, plenty of bad days, plenty of good days. And, uh, we just wanted to be able to document that in real time. Um, and so that was actually really fun for me, particularly with our efforts with the kids. We went and spoke to, you know, thousands of school kids before I left. And then even more as the project went on, different schools and teachers and school districts started hearing about the story and following along in their classrooms. And, you know, the classrooms and public schools have blogs and internet and all that stuff is totally normal for them and social media and Instagram and Snapchat and all these things. And so they got to live this project side by side uh, with me, which really is is special. I think that there's uh, a lot to be learned from that, more so than if you go back certainly 10, 20, 30 years, you would say, I'm doing this expedition. And then six months later, you'd come back and say, I did this expedition. Would you like to see my slideshow? You know, <laughs> um, and so it was really fun for me to be able to share that, particularly with uh, the kids following along. One of the first things I did when I got back a couple weeks ago, school was still in session here in Portland, and I went back and visited the number of schools in this area um, that had been following along. And in the fall, we planned to do a much more robust school tour uh, once school's back in. Um, but it was amazing. I mean, these kids had watched this whole thing and then had driven was always my hope, their own inspiration from it. Like, oh, I saw in that part where you had to turn around, but then like you had the courage to go back up. Like that reminded me when, you know, I was really disappointed about this in my own life. And you know, I really just decided to keep fighting. And so it was really great to see that. And I don't think that you can have that level of impact without being able to share the story day by day. And so and the visuals, yeah, like visually, the actual visual. Exactly. Yeah. To actually see it. And again, the inspiration isn't to try to show these kids that they should climb Mount Everest or whatever, but it's an eye into parts of the world that they necessarily haven't seen or the idea that these places even exist out there. Whether they ever go to those places is almost inconsequential to the fact that they realize that there's a whole world out there of adventure. And, you know, that can be found in the park two blocks from their house. You know, that could be found, you know, by flying halfway across the world. You know, either they're really kind of the same, but there's the metaphor is, I think, really valuable. So that was really cool. And then um, something that I guess now seems obvious, but I didn't anticipate at the time is that really the kids provided me a tremendous amount of inspiration. Um, there were some really hard moments on this project, certainly times when I didn't know if I could keep going or the logistics were going to disrupt us or, you know, the weather was horrible and knowing that those kids were out there 
cheering me on, you know, really kept me going in those tough times. And the social media went both ways. You know, I was posting all this stuff to my, you know, my channels um, and telling this story. But I would get videos or little letters or things, you know, pretty frequently from these classrooms going, Colin, you can do it. Anything is possible. We believe in you and all this sort of stuff. Or these kids sending me photos when I was on Everest. And they're like, you're on Everest now, but my Everest is I want to be a doctor one day. Or I want to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. Or my Everest is to, you know, be a football player, you know, you know, in high school or whatever. Like, and so to share their goals with me while I was pursuing my big goal was, uh, was really incredible and, um, humbling. Yeah. And that's like, I think that's at the core of what you're trying to do is showing that like setting goals and following through with that process is really like what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's really, you know, kind of the core of why we did this whole thing in the first place. So to see that impact really form and take shape is uh, incredible. And so you said in the fall, you are going to be doing a school tour, but like, what is next for you right now? Is it recovering? Are you are you dreaming of like your next mountaineering adventure or your return to triathlon? Like what's rolling? Yeah, the uh, I'm sure there's going to be some sort of adventure, expedition, physical pursuit in my future. But um, that is the there's nothing specific in my mind right now. Definitely way more in a recovery phase at this point and uh for me, it's nice to have uh, a bed to sleep in and uh, be back uh, near Jenna, near my family, uh, friends is uh, is really nice. Um, so, to have that is is sort of the the main priority right now. But really, the main focus in terms of of the work that still needs to be done is you know we we set ourselves two goals. One was to set this world record, and the other was to raise a million dollars towards this really important cause. Um, and so we're going to continue our fundraising efforts until we reach that goal, um, you know, and, uh, be out in the community with outreach work, you know, speaking to schools and all that. So really, really sharing this story in a, in a way that's meaningful and motivating and hopefully inspirational. So that's, that's the primary focus of, uh, what we're going to continue to do here, uh, on the, on the wake of this project and in the future, who knows, but, uh, in in my personal life, uh, getting married soon. So that's, uh, exciting for me. Um, in terms of uh, another lifelong adventure. Um, and uh, yeah, what's next after that? Who knows? And when you say the continuing to fundraise, reaching that $1 million goal, like how can people get involved or listeners could give back? Is it just simply going online, donating? Like how do you want people to reach out? Yeah, so on our website, beyond72.com, um, we have a donate button on there. Uh, we are working in partnership with an organization called the Alliance for a Healthier Generation. Um, and 100% of the money that is donated on there goes directly to them, directly to the kids. This is not to fund any of my climbing or any of that. It's completely separate um, from all that. So when you're donating, it's literally directly impacting kids. The Alliance for a Healthier Generation does incredible work nationwide. Uh, impacting about you know twenty nine or twenty million kids in twenty nine thousand schools nationwide with you know you know in school programs of health and well being food nutrition as well as after school programs um, just a really great organization we vetted a number of organizations to make sure we were working with what we thought was you know the best people in the space and really impressed with the work that they're doing so it's great to be supporting their efforts um, and using this campaign to help uh, support support the kids being healthy. Yeah, it's pretty awesome that you get to partner with an organization you feel really in alignment with. Like, it's not like you're having to to source where this is all going. Right. You know, you have someone that's like 
really on top of that element of it. That's yeah. Awesome. I mean, we were inspired to, you know, work in this space, but we did, you know, our homework and research and realized that there's some people doing great work in this space that we that feel really good up. about that we can help to lift up. Um, and so, like you said, instead of trying to start our own, you know, we do have our own small nonprofit, but instead of trying to start all of our own programs and start from scratch and compete for fundraising dollars, we're like, well, why don't we support the efforts of someone who's already doing incredible work? And so that's been a great partnership and we're really proud, um, you know, of the work that we've done to help them. Completely. That's awesome. I have, I, I mean, I first encountered your story through the Ritual podcast and Rich has been on my podcast. I know we both really look up to him. Yeah. And you had spoken on his podcast about going to two different Vipassana meditation retreats. Yeah. And I want to hear a little bit about the role of meditation, how it either plays in your life now, or maybe the lessons you learned from those two retreats and how you've been able to apply them in the mountaineering context. Yeah. For me, uh, meditation has been a, a huge value add in my life in many different ways. Um, I was first exposed to the Vipassana 10 day silent meditation retreat. Um, for listeners out there that don't know what it is, it's, uh, basically what it sounds like. No reading, no writing, no eye contact and no exercising, no exercising. And it's 10 days of pretty much, uh, meditating straight without talking or doing anything other than meditating really um and funny enough before that point I had never meditated uh, a single minute in my life um you're like I'm just gonna go on a 10-day retreat (laughs) a friend of mine had suggested it and told me about it and uh I was like wow I think to me I've always known um the that the mental power and strength is you know as valuable, if not more valuable than the physical demeanor. And we spend so much time in our lives, particularly as athletes, focusing on the physical side. You know, you have coaches for that, you have training for that, you have nutrition for that, all of those things. But what people don't realize is that the brain is a muscle just like, you know, the rest of our body. And so if it's not trained properly and it's not worked out and relaxed and, you know, all of those things, it, it, you can't really make it stronger. Um, and so, I kind of wanted to dive headfirst into this to learn what I could about it and see if it was an interesting thing for me. Um, my stepfather, who's an amazing guy, huge role model in my life, uh, drove me to the first Vipassana retreat that I went to. And he said, so I'm just going to stay here for an hour or two because I'm pretty sure you're going to realize this is a horrible idea. He's like, I've never heard you stop talking for five minutes, like 10 days, Colin, like a happening. Like, just let me just I'll be in the parking lot. Just come out when you're done. <laughs> but I made it through the 10 days. Proved him wrong, um, but much more importantly, uh, learned some incredibly valuable lessons about myself, about the power of the mind, um, and that has uh, continued on into a daily meditation practice in my life. Um, and I have gone back, like you said, uh, to uh, a couple of other Vipassana meditation retreats uh, over the last few years. So yeah, that was probably about five years that that kind of came into my life. And funny enough, I uh, initially did it to try to become a better triathlete really was kind of my reason for doing it initially. And although it certainly has played a significant role in, you know, mental strength, fueling success on the race course or success in the mountains, it's had a much more, even larger, greater, more dramatic impact in just my daily life, just relationships with family, friends, the way I perceive things, my reactions to things. And that's been, you know, even more valuable. But, you know, as it directly pertains to this mountaineering project, 
Um, I actually, you know, having that mental strength, fortitude was huge. Being able to calm myself down in times of anxiety or fear um, uh, was huge. And then the the poles, which is not something we've talked a lot about, but, um, you know, basically on the north and south pole, you're more or less dragging a, you know, 100 to 150 pound sled behind you with your gear in it and just walking, um, you know, for me on, on cross country skis for hour after hour after hour throughout the day. So the South pole, there's pretty much just sensory deprivation. Cause it's just this expansive white nothingness, nothing to really look at other than just this like endless sea of white. And it's so cold, although I was out there with a couple other people, you know, it's minus 40 out. You've got every inch of your skin is covered. Otherwise, you'd get frostbite immediately. Um, and you're just suffering in a way that doesn't allow for, like, much, like, talking um, to anyone else. So you're basically just out there in this crazy place pushing your body for 10-plus hours in any given day and surviving in these elements. So... Um, if you don't have some mental fortitude or a place that you can go in your mind uh, to sort of calm yourself or to stay focused, it would uh, be a, a pretty hard, hard thing to do. So it was really valuable um, in those moments for sure. Yeah, when I think about, I've never done a Vipassana retreat, I've done meditation, but I think of just like you, you get more space yeah. in your mind, like just more space or even the space in between the thoughts or your reaction time can mm-hmm. be slower to things. And so it's like, that's an interesting parallel with the South Pole, North Pole, just so much like actual physical land space. Yeah. Not- yeah. It's a very lonely, solitary, uh, place really. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, the, I think I like the, the parallel you drew between the emotional and physical, just expansiveness. And you, I mean, you're, you've been a quite a world traveler, as you've said, even before this adventure began, are there any of the summits or the poles that you actually want to return to, whether it be with Jenna or maybe your future kids someday, or like a place that kind of captured your heart? Yeah. Um, I was actually just saying to Jenna a couple of days ago that, uh, Svalbard, which is long Airbnb, I was mentioning where you kind of the jumping off point for the North pole. So that's at 78 degrees North. Um, and you know, that's basically archipelago off the Northern coast of Norway. And that's just an incredible place. Uh, I was delayed there for eight days and that wasn't as to be delayed. There was very, uh, not that fun for me cause I was so stressed. Um, but it's just this crazy untouched landscape, endless mountains, endless things to explore. There's on this huge archipelago I mean, it's, it's, it's very large, you know, hundreds of miles, um, there's 2,000 residents and there's more than 3,000 polar bears. So there's more polar bears than people. <laughs> um, but just a really remarkable place. And that's a place that I would love to return to um, someday for sure. And the other place that really um, kind of snuck up and surprised me was uh, Mount Elbrus in Russia. Um, it's uh, you know located right in, in, in southern Russia there on the Georgia border in the Caucasus. And the mountain, Mount Elbrus itself, is very beautiful, but you kind of look back from Mount Elbrus straight down into the Georgia border and the Caucasus Range, and it's just a stunning, stunning place, like just an absolutely breathtaking landscape. Um, And I wasn't necessarily expecting that, so um, that was a place that really was enchanting to me that I I would definitely return to. That's so cool. That's so cool. And you met, I imagine, thousands of people, whether it's in airports, in transit, in, you know, on the actual expeditions, what, what do you think was something you, you were surprised by about people? You know, the commonality of us all or something. Yeah. Is the thread that you were surprised by. 
You know, it was it was interesting to the logistics behind this project were so crazy. Um, and like I said before, we had planned for about a year um, all the logistics. But then the second that I actually started going, we had to change those things. And that's not to say that our, our time was wasted, but it was, uh, you know, we had to be able to adjust on the fly. And in each one of these countries and each one of these places, even if I wasn't climbing with somebody else, it required having somebody on the ground that we were talking to, just somebody who knew, you know, most of these countries have climbing permits or government regulations of like how to access this, you know, outdoor landscapes or whatnot, just, and it's different in every single place. Um, so that was very daunting for us, you know, sitting in our house in Portland, Oregon, trying to figure out the guy in Russia who we're supposed to talk to that can drive us from, you know, here to there or, you know, figuring out the helicopter pilot in, you know, West Papua who can take you up into the jungle, you know, just all of these crazy things. Um, very overwhelming at times and, and make no mistake, it was very tough. Um, but to your question, one of the things that was really remarkable in every single one of these places, be it, you know, some of these countries are, you know, some of the, you know, Norway is one of the richest countries in the world. And, you know, Nepal is one of the poorest or Tanzania, you know, there's a huge difference and variance in all of these places. But there's a commonality of just people. Once I told people what I was doing, what I was striving for, people understood the inspiration, the challenge, and were really eager to help. Um, and that was just amazing to see the amount of people, you know, I could never even name all the names or even, even probably recall of the faces, but the people that just little things along the way have helped this project. Like I said, there's obviously, you know, Jenna or people in my family who have worked on this project and spent a lot of time on it that we couldn't have done it without, but I also couldn't have done it without, you know, the taxi driver in South America taking me from here to there, or the guy who realized, oh, he's in a bad situation, you know, let me lend him a hand with this or that. Um, and so, you know, the culmination of just the human spirit and the willingness to when you put something out to the world that you're trying to achieve um, the amount of reciprocal help and love uh, felt in all corners of the world was really remarkable that's really cool it's amazing all those little things and those little interactions that create this tapestry yeah of what you did that yeah, can't absolutely. be seen you have on your website some different words for each different expedition, whether it's victory or timeless or vigilance. Did you use those words as like mantras when you were ever hiking or did you ever have a statement, like a power statement for yourself that you held in your mind? Um, the biggest one for me, it actually goes back to Vipassana. Those words certainly uh, were powerful and we wanted to find some words that related to sort of each one of these mountains has some lore about them or history or, uh, you know, the local culture, you know, uh, embraces the mountains in different ways in these places. So those, those words that we use on the website are really uh, tied to that in a lot of ways. Um, one of the biggest sort of personal mantras that I had actually goes back to Vipassana, which is um, one of the main things taught there in any sort of mindfulness changing is or training is, you know, this idea that, what we're doing is somewhat temporary, that nothing in life is permanent. So this I, mantra for me is this too will change, um, and both in the good and the bad time. So there was times when I was so awestruck by the landscape or the beauty or couldn't even um, believe where I was, and the remembering this too will change 
is valuable in those moments to really drink in the experience to be like, you're standing at the South pole right now. Like I must like pinch myself. Like you're here, like breathe it in literally, like look around, like explore, um, you know, from that side of things. And then of course the opposite of true, which is, you know, being in my tent in Denali in a snowstorm, literally having to yell to Tucker at the next tent, can you come help dig me out? I can't get myself out of the tent. The snow had covered my tent and was collapsing me so much. And it's just, the you know, I'm exhausted coming off Everest. It's just one of the worst, most uncomfortable situations you can imagine. And the same thing is true. This too will change. Like this is not a permanent state that I'm in. Um, so that really was uh, a valuable lesson learned from the meditation, but that is a mantra that I can apply to all of these circumstances, both on the good and the, the bad side of the experience that was happening. Yeah. Wow. I feel like we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, this has been great. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm really stoked that we're both in Oregon and that we got to connect. It's pretty cool. I've been following along your journey. Um, and I had no doubt that you would do it, um, in one piece, but it's pretty amazing. To I'm just... glad you felt that way. Cause I okay. was, you know, cause I was, I had some doubts for long. I, I didn't have a doubt. <laughs> After I heard you on Rich's podcast, I was like, no, this dude, I mean, I didn't know that you were going to set the world records or double world records, but definitely a lot of strength in your being. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite a journey and uh, it's fun to continue the journey now by sharing this story and, uh, you know, hopefully particularly with the young people out there can derive some inspiration in their own lives to dream big and set goals and, you know, get out there and explore. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Isn't Colin amazing? Not only is it incredible that he set two world records when he was just going after one, but his humility, his positivity, and his passion run so deep. If you haven't already, I'd highly recommend you visit beyond72.com right now, where you can see visuals of his trip, including some epic summit videos, pictures, and donate to Beyond72's mission to raise over a million dollars to combat childhood obesity. Reach out to Colin and I on Twitter and share this conversation so that more people can get tapped into Colin's efforts in the Beyond 72 journey. If you tune into Rue regularly and it provides inspiration to your life, please consider donating to Running on Home's Patreon page. Help support me bring all of you the highest quality podcasts every week and in return get to be a part of an intimate Rue community to have insider access into the podcast and exclusive content. So visit patreon.com slash running on home and know that any amount of support helps. My final ask is super simple, and that's to leave an iTunes review. All it takes is a one-sentence review makes a world of difference and helps improve Rue's visibility in the iTunes interface so that I can continue bringing on the most amazing guests for all of you. I've read every single review, so thank you so much if you've already left one. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for supporting Running on Home. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rue-filled day.